Thank you, Nick. Uh, let me just start by saying welcome to Fellowship Church. If, uh, if you haven't been here before, uh, many of you probably have not been. Welcome. Uh, this is a really exciting day for us uh, to be able to host uh, Dr. Yuan and to have this uh, conference. And uh, it is something that we're excited to be able to do and to be able to offer to our church, but also um, to the community around us. Um, I wanted to mention that this is the first event that we are having under the banner of our Truth and Worldview Initiative, and uh, what that is is uh, this initiative is is really part of our church's effort to uh, equip the church, and and that would be yes our our own local church, but also the greater community around us. And uh, the desire we have is to do that so that we can discern. Um, and, and understand uh, cultural and, and social issues and to do so from a, from a biblical worldview. And uh, our hope is, um, is to help believers think biblically. That's a, that's a phrase that we've been talking a lot about as a church, to think biblically about uh, the complex social and cultural ideologies of our world. Um, and not just to simply know Bible verses, but to learn how to apply biblical principles that are really spread throughout the Word of God um, and understand those and apply those uh, to some of the cultural concerns that we have. And so we're, we're hoping to do that by hosting conferences such as this, uh, maybe seminars uh, in the future, other special events, uh, we want to be able to provide uh, resources uh, to believers basically in our regional area. And, um, and we really consider what we're doing today as part of that and, uh, and why we're excited to do it. We were able to provide this uh, particular conference uh, today at no cost, and that's something that we were uh, happy to be able to do. And it was really due to the generous donation of someone else who is committed to this initiative. And we would love to continue to do that, uh, do these kinds of events. And so I just want to make you aware that if you would like to help us do that, you can use the uh, QR code that is... Um, here on the screen, or the one that's also on your program, and um, you can make a donation to this initiative, and that's just going to allow us to be able to do these kinds of things more often and really be able to do it in a way uh, where we can make it available to as many people as possible. So uh, that kind of gets all the stuff out that I wanted to make sure to communicate with you uh, this afternoon. Um, let me now just take the time to properly introduce uh, our special guest and speaker today, uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan. We had the opportunity as a church to have him speak. Uh, he and his mother, Angela, shared their testimony, the family testimony, along with uh, Leon uh, through video. And it was an incredible, uh, just an incredible time. And we're so thankful uh, that the Lord allowed our paths to cross and that he was able to be a part of that. So I know, I know all of us are going to be blessed uh, today. But Dr. Yuan graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005. He received a master's in biblical exegesis in 2007 and a doctorate of ministry in 2014. He taught the Bible at uh, Moody Bible for 12 years and his uh, speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached as far as five uh, continents. And um, he speaks uh, regularly 
at uh, conferences and college campuses and uh, also um, in the local church, which of course he's doing um, today. And uh, Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan have experienced much heartache uh, from a broken marriage and also their, their prodigal sons, which is part of that, uh, that story, um, that, uh, the family testimony. But God has given them the grace to rely upon his power to change the unchangeable. And that's what our God does. And, and to focus upon their own daily renewal and uh, transformation. And for those of you who were not able to be a part of that this morning, you could find that um, that family testimony will be um, on our website and available for you to watch and will really help connect some things with what you're going to be hearing this afternoon. Christopher has co-authored with his mother their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay, Son, a Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, which has sold over 100,000 copies and is now in eight languages his newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story, was named the 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach uh, Magazine. And uh, those uh, resources are available uh, today um, at, their, uh, at their table. On July 3rd, 2022, Leon went home to be with the Lord, but Although there is a deep void uh, that uh, Angela and Christopher uh, have, as a result of that, they continue to serve their Lord and they continue to serve the Lord's church as they're doing today. So would you just please now uh, warmly welcome uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan. Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, thank you for giving us this day, your day. Help us to rejoice in it. Lord, as we start off this afternoon, help us to keep Christ the center and help us, Lord, to be full of grace and full of truth by your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For God so loved the world. We all probably have memorized that. I think many unbelievers even know that verse. For God so loved the world. We've memorized it. We know what it says. But I think we don't reflect on what the verse does not say. The verse does not say, for God only loves Christians. For God so loved the world. The verse also doesn't say, for God only loves re really, really good people who always obey God. For God so loved the world. The verse also doesn't say, for God only loves those people who have opposite sex attractions. The verse says, for God so loved the world. But I think as people who are called to think critically, the question we need to ask is, what is love? And, and how does God love? Love is love, the world says. And I thought Christians were accused of circular reasoning. Or you do you. Is that how God calls us to love? And is that how God loves? You do you. Or... Does God love us as Paul describes 
in Romans 5, verse 6, where it says that he loves us while we were still powerless. Two verses later, Romans 6, Romans 5, verse 8, it says that God loves us while we were still sinners. You know what's so fascinating? That word in Greek translated still, you know what it means? Still. Amazing, right? (laughs) Still sinners. Not like getting your life together, picking yourself up by your bootstraps. Still sinners. He loved us. And in Romans 5 verse 10, two verses after that, Paul writes that God loves us while we were enemies. Who does that? God does. And he's calling us to love in that same indescribable, impossible way to love even enemies. Does the world even do that? No. Other religions? No. The God of the universe who revealed himself through Jesus Christ, his son, is calling us to love in that way. And we don't do that well, but we're called to do that, exemplified by Christ who loved his enemies. You see, those in the gay community or in the trans-LGBT, they're, they're not at all our enemies. They are people who need Christ as we all need Christ. If and as God loved me in that same way. And if you would like to hear more of my testimony, if you weren't here this morning, I encourage you to go to the Fellowship Church website. You can hear our family testimony. But here, as we begin this conference, if there is one thing that I think that Christians miss when it comes to understanding sexuality, that we miss when it comes to engaging with the world, when it comes to sexual identity or gender identity, is that we don't fully grasp how the world has completely conflated sexuality, and I could add gender, with who we are. I'll say it again. If there is one thing that I believe Christians miss, and part of that is because of I wasn't raised in a Christian home, I didn't go to church, I lived as a gay man. This was who I was. We don't fully understand what that means. We miss how the world, and now Christians, it's, we're using the same wrong framework. We view sexuality, this is who a person is. And we don't know the full extent to that. I mean, we all ask ourselves this question, who am I? And some of us, We shape how we answer that question by maybe our family or our friends or our culture. Others put their identity in their work. I'm a lawyer. Or maybe sports. I'm a football player. Or hobby. I'm a gamer. Still others put their identity in their sexuality. I am gay. Or their gender, I am trans. Yet do these substitutes really describe who we are or something else? You might think, oh, what's the difference? You say tomato, I say tomato. You know, you you say same-sex attracted and someone else says I am gay. What's the difference? I mean, it's just all the same thing, isn't it? 
Well, how we answer this question, who am I, it impacts how we think. It impacts the choices we make. It impacts relationships that we build. Our thoughts, our actions, our relationships, almost everything is influenced in large part by how we all answer this question, who am I? Which actually points to this close relationship between essence and ethics. Let me explain. Who we are, essence, actually impacts how we live, ethics. And the opposite is true. How we live impacts how we view ourselves, who we are. So if you have a flawed view of who you are, you're going to have a flawed personal ethic. And vice versa is true. If you have a flawed personal ethic, you're going to have a flawed view of who you are. For example, if you know someone who says, I'm a partier, is that going to influence how this person lives? Of course it is. Or let's just say if a person um, says, I'm a lawyer, is that going to influence what she thinks about? She's going to think about law. Or I'm a football player. Is that going to influence the choices he makes? He's going to choose to go play football on his free time. Or I'm a gamer. Is that going to influence the relationships that he has? All his friends are most likely going to be gamers. See, personhood affects practice. Practice affects personhood. When I identified as a gay man years ago, before I came to Christ, my whole world was gay. All my friends were gay. I lived in an apartment complex that was 90 to 95% gay men. Like, not like gays and lesbians. There's this misunderstanding today that somehow there's a such thing as an LGBTQ plus community. There's not. You have a gay community, you have a lesbian community. I mean, even geographically, like if you're going, I'm not familiar that much with Philly, but I'm going to guess that if there's a gay community, it's not exactly where the lesbian community is. There's different, I mean, it's, it's a little common sense, you know, gay men like, not a trick question, not a trick question. <laughs> gay men like men, lesbian women like women. And there, there's a, there, there are differences in, in what our interests My whole community was gay men. The apartment complex that I lived in, 90, 95% gay men. I worked out at at a gay gym. I bought my groceries, what we nicknamed the gay Kroger. I bought my new sports car from a gay car dealer. My bookkeeper was gay. My housekeeper was gay. Everything and everyone around me was affirming what my flesh was saying. I am gay. You see, sexuality was the core of who I was. And everything and everyone around me affirmed that. You see, this goes, this is more preliminary. It goes before trying to talk to someone that this is sinful behavior. Because this person doesn't even see this as behavior. I'll say this again. It's more preliminary than trying to bring up or talk with someone that this is sinful behavior because the world does not see this as behavior. They see this as who a person is. Even the term gay. We put a verb before gay. What is it? Being gay. What does being mean? 
like if it was doing gay or feeling gay, actually, that would be more accurate. But it's not doing gay or being or, or feeling gay. It's being gay. Being relays that this is communicates that this is about a person's essence. So even the term being gay, that that we have made it into who a person is, it reveals this deep philosophical and theological misunderstanding. It's a faulty presupposition. In other words, our starting point is incorrect. It's a starting point that points to our essence, the core of our being. So therefore, being gay no longer means what I'm attracted to or what I desire or what I do. If you have a good friend or maybe your coworker or a loved one that identifies as gay or lesbian or even trans, and you were were to ask them, what do you mean when you say I am lesbian or I am gay, et cetera? They will not say, this is what I feel. They won't say, this is what I do. They're gonna say, this is who I am. This subtle shift from what, what I feel, what I do, what I think, to who I am has created this radically distorted view of personhood. But I don't know of any other experience, any other feeling or desire or thought that we've made it who a person is. Like take, for example, um, happy. Like if someone was to say, I am happy. No one would ever think, oh, that's who you are. Unless you're a dwarf and you hang out with six other dwarves (laughs) and Snow White. (laughs) I am happy. That's not, we would think, well, that's what you feel now. Fantastic. That's great. Good for you. But let's go to the other side of the spectrum. Not I am happy, but I am depressed. And as, a real, as real of a struggle as that is, that's unchosen, that doesn't go away easily, which we see this parallel. Don't, don't people say, well, I never chose this. I never chose to have same-sex attraction. I, it doesn't go away. Well, neither does depression. Depression is not chosen. Depression doesn't go away. So does that mean then therefore it's good? Does this therefore mean that's who you are? I am depressed. Should anyone ever, ever say that's who you are? But we can all say no. That's not a good way to respond when someone says I'm depressed, right? Amen? That's not a good way. That's who you are. You can't can't help it. You just got to like, you know, wallow in it or celebrate it. We would never, ever say that. But you see how we kind of, we we get a, a little bit, you know, inconsistent in the way that we approach this. It's not who you are. Okay, let's, let's just say instead of a feeling, let's say a behavior or an action or maybe some sinful behavior. If you know someone who gossips all the time, you, you know, you're a gossiper. No one would think that's who that person is, but what this person does. So stop it. Or a liar. You're a liar. That's not who a person is, but what this person does. And yet, when it comes to sexuality, I am gay. We've completely made it who a person is. In, so, 
we have, you know, we see that this should really not be thought of who a person is. So if it's not who a person is, then what is it? If, if sexuality is not who we are, then, then what in the world could it be? See, I, we need to correctly think that sexuality is not who we are, but how we are. And when we make the error to make it who a person is, isn't this then a categorical fallacy, a categorical error that then is going to distort how we think, the choices we make, and the relationships that we build? It's going to impact everything. So when people ask, what does it matter? It matters a lot. Because our starting point is going to set the trajectory for the direction in which we're going to go. The terms heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, the term gay, straight, bi, actually turn desire into personhood, our experience into essence. Because rightly so, the terms heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, gay, straight, bi should actually not describe people, but they should describe our experience, our attractions, our feelings, our relationships, our actions. But our desires, attractions, our actions do not describe who we are. We have heterosexual or homosexual, bisexual feelings. But that's not really when we're being precise and accurate, don't describe who we are. But the world has made it who we are. So therefore, in other words, our experience is the only thing that really matters. If you feel something, that's your truth. And we all need to speak our truths. So experience essentially reigns supreme and everything else needs to bow down before it. So no longer are we sola scriptura, scripture alone, what we are today is sola experientia, experience alone. So who am I? Who are you? Who are we? This fundamental question is foundational to wrapping our minds around understanding and better ministering on this topic of sexuality, sexual identity, and even gender identity. Because I don't think we can even begin to address sexuality until we first answer this question, who am I? And actually, there's, there is an aspect of theology that helps us to answer that question. And that, that question about who am I is a question about humanity. Who are we? As, not just as individuals, but who are we as human beings? We call that the study of anthropology, study of humanity. But specifically, because the world has a way of studying humanity, but actually the world, the way that world studies humanity, they actually have the wrong starting point because they begin with there is no God. And what ends up happening is humans trying to understand humans, which actually is just a self-study. And you're only limited in a self-study. Humans are trying to understand other, other human beings. That's a self-study. There is no God, they believe. That's the wrong starting point. So the right starting point is beginning with the fact that there is God. And we need to begin there because God created us. And if God created us, he knows us best. Amen? And we call that theological anthropology. I know that's a big word, but I figure that 
you've already probably had your naps and so you're awake a little bit. So I'm throwing this word out there for you, theological anthropology. It's a big word, but we cannot properly understand human sexuality unless we begin with theological anthropology. This is a big phrase that you can repeat to other people and like impress them with some big words. But essentially, it's, we want to better understand human sexuality, right? Not like animal sexuality or polar bear sexuality, or human sexuality. And if we want to understand human sexuality, we need to understand humans. That's a good place to start. And to understand humans, it's, that's the study of humanity, anthropology, but beginning with the right starting point, which is from God's view. Theological anthropology is essentially the study of humanity through God's eyes. And there's just two main things that I want to highlight when it comes to theological anthropology. Number one, we're all created in the image of God. But it doesn't end there. We're also all fallen. So we have the good news and the bad news. We're creating the image of God. Good news. But we're also all fallen. Bad news. Some of you are like, well, you know what? I, I need, you know, I need something practical. I, I, you know, this theology is just, you know, too abstract. Well, in Bible college, I had my first systematic theology professor um, challenged us to think of theology as a verb. You do theology. Actually, it's bad theology that leads to apathy. Good theology about this amazing God that is so other but and yet so near that loves you and me while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, that type of God should compel us into action. Like, I can't just sit here anymore. I got to tell others about this amazing God. Amen? That's the theology that I'm talking about. Good theology leads to action. Bad theology leads to apathy. Oh, but I'm not a theologian. And I would argue you are a theologian. If you say you're a Christian, you can't be a Christian without having some knowledge of God. Theology is just knowledge of God. Theos, God, logos, word or truth or saying. You, if you know something about God, you're a theologian. I argue even that atheists are theologians. They're just bad theologians. <laughs> So how, beginning with theological anthropology that we're creating God's image, but we're also all fallen, how does that better understand my gay neighbor or my coworker or my loved one, my son or daughter who's gay or lesbian? Well, let me give you just some four practical things that what's starting there with theological anthropology actually helps us to apply. Four things. Number one, beginning with theological anthropology helps us to rebuke the arrogant condemner. Maybe some people who are, and, and, some, and, and these are sometimes people in the church. Oftentimes it is those people who, who are in the church, you know, Christians, and they're like, oh, those gay people, you know, they're ruining our country. No, sin is ruining our country. It's not another person. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. Our enemy, we have one enemy. And oftentimes, actually, that enemy is also with, inside of us, our own sin nature. You see, every human being is created in the image of God. Regardless of other, other, anyone's age, sex, or ethnicity, regardless of anyone's, whether someone is in submission to God or not, regardless of whether someone has same-sex attractions, opposite-sex attractions, both or none, we're all created in the image of God. 
It's inherent to who we are. And when we say that each person should be treated with respect, it actually isn't because of our commitment to social justice. It's because we're all created in God's image. You see, when we say that people should be treated with respect, actually the image of God is the only true foundation for justice. And this is an indictment to Christians who might mock and demonize and make fun of others who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, or queer, etc., non-binary, whatever, the list goes on. Hurtful actions like that really fail to honor the dignity of someone created in God's image. And it forsakes the believer's calling to reflect the image of Christ to those who have yet to believe. I mean, should we warn people of sin? Of course, but how are we doing it? Dwight Lyman Moody, one of the greatest evangelists, you know, at the turn of the century, the 19th um, century, it was said of him that he was, only he was most qualified to preach on hell. And do you know why? Because he did it with tears. So beginning with theological anthropology, recognizing we're all creating God's image, we're also fallen, but that we're all creating God's image, that, that, that helps to rebuke the arrogant condemner. Second, beginning with theological anthropology, it avoids a common incorrect diagnosis. See, when you have a diagnosis, and let's say it's a correct diagnosis, well, the correct diagnosis helps us to have a correct response, a correct treatment. An incorrect diagnosis will lead to an incorrect response, an incorrect treatment. And honestly, I think Christians, we have for the past several decades, we have diagnosed this particular issue incorrectly. What do I mean? How many of you guys have ever heard before something like this? That the root causes of homosexuality are... An absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. Anyone hear something like that before? Now, those things certainly, I think, can be influences if you were ever abused as a child or any time, physically, emotionally, sexually. That's going to have negative ramifications on your life today. It's not my point. My point is that's not the root cause of your sinful behavior. It's an influence, but not the root cause. So, see, when we make that the wrong diagnosis, then we respond in the wrong way. And we think about this as a particular peculiar issue that's kind of different from other sins. Do we say that about other sins? Well, what's the root cause of jealousy? Your parents? What's the root cause of pornography addiction? You know, something in your childhood, like maybe your mom dropped you a few too many times. We would never say that. What's the root cause? Let's just broaden out the question. What's the root cause of any sinful behavior? Are childhood problems? See, the problem with that is not only is, I mean, it's, Looking at where does that come from? Does that come from God's word? 
Does God's word communicate that the root causes of all of our sinful problems is rooted in our childhood? You know where that teaching comes from? Not God's word, but the teachings of Sigmund Freud. It was Sigmund Freud who believed everything that we struggle with as adults are all rooted to our childhood. An absentee father, dominant mother, abuse, whatever, or even trauma. As if somehow a deficient and imperfect childhood is the culprit behind same-sex attractions. See, that's the wrong diagnosis. Those things are influences, but it's the wrong diagnosis. What does Scripture say? The root cause of any sinful behavior is our own sin nature. We can't blame other people. See, when we recognize that, that we're all, we're all sinners, every one of us, that's the root cause, beginning with theological anthropology. Sure, we're creating God's image, but every one of us, we're all fallen. We all, we're all sinners. We all have this sin nature. Thus, sin is the problem. And what's the correct response? Jesus Christ is the correct answer. And when we fall into that incorrect diagnosis, what has that led to? That has led to parents who continually beat themselves up. What did I do wrong? And if that is you, hear me very, very carefully. It's not your fault. Perfect parenting never guarantees perfect children. Look at Adam and Eve. Didn't they have a perfect father? Yes or no? They did. Didn't they have a perfect environment? Eden, you couldn't be more perfect. They still rebelled. What makes you think, father, mother, you can do better than our heavenly father? The job of a Christian parent is actually not to produce godly children. You can't do that. That's not your job. I know you might be thinking, well, I, I want that. Wanting, wanting that is different than doing it. Because if you could actually do that, you would be God. And here's a secret. You're not God. The job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children. The job of a Christian parent is just to be a godly parent. You be godly. Pray your heart out that your children would follow Jesus. Still, do everything you can to point your kids to Jesus, but know that doing A, B, C, X, Y, Z does not all of a sudden produce godly children. You do those things because you want to point your kids to Christ and then, and this is important, and then let God be God. Amen? It's not your fault. So beginning with theological anthropology, it helps us to avoid a common incorrect diagnosis. But third, and, and point number two helps us to kind of 
refine and correct our, the, the old framework. But this third point actually helps us to address this new growing misunderstanding today is where, where point two was kind of addressing sort of the ex-gay framework. This point three is addressing this growing kind of trend that I see within the church that is embracing this gay celibate Christian framework or often known as side B. And the issue here is regarding repentance, full repentance. See, beginning with theological anthropology, anthropology helps us to affirm repentance, rejecting not just the acts, but also the desires. Because that's, that's what the, the one thing that where that framework where they actually, they fall short. It's not just we're quibbling over words. Oftentimes, that's the misunderstanding. You know, that, you know, someone says gay. I don't say gay. I say such attracted. What's the difference? We all mean the same thing, don't we? No. That individual might say, well, I, when I say gay, I mean this. I, I'm glad that that person doesn't mean that. But it's naive to think that we can somehow change the definition of words. As a man who used to identify as gay, who lived in the gay community for years, and as a person who still continues to engage with those who identify as gay in the world, those who just restrict the meaning of gay just to mean same-sex attracted are only within the subculture of Christianity, with another subculture within Christianity. It's only Christians who think that. The world doesn't. The world does not believe that the term gay only means attractions. They mean it to be who a person is. And take that from someone who used to be in that world. We're sometimes naive to think that gay only, like we can just, gay means this, and we're like, no, it doesn't, it means just that. Because when the world means that, and we continue to use those words, but that's not actually the main reason. What, what, what really happens in this is, and the reason why people want to hold on to that is because for them, the term gay is not just about, you know, uh, sex, the behavior, which I agree. Sexual, sexuality is not just about the sexual behavior. It's more than that. But then they're like, the other stuff, it's just the behavior that's wrong. The other stuff isn't sin. It's not so bad. And actually, there's aspects that's good. That's kind of the, you know, if you're unfamiliar with that, that's kind of the, the going kind of discussion right now. A person is gay and we're Christians. We just need to accept them, just help them to not act on it. And, and I rejoice that we're, we're recognizing that the act is wrong. But is that all? This is about repentance. Is that all? And I'll have to just be really frank here. I used to think that. When I first came to Christ, I thought, okay, I might still have these temptations, and so I need to focus on not acting on it. Just don't act on it. That seems pretty logical. Until I read God's word. For example... Romans 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, as long as he doesn't act on it, he's fine. 
Is that, is that what that verse says? As, as long as he doesn't act on it, he's fine. No. Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he's already committed adultery. So when we encourage people, don't act on it, that's good, but then we stop there, are we actually calling people to true repentance? Your desires, that's still fine. Just You don't have to repent of those. See, we need to think biblically because we're like, well, you know, so does this mean he's always need to repenting? We need to differentiate, as Scripture differentiates, the difference between temptation and desire. You know the word attraction is not found anywhere in the Bible? Attraction is not found anywhere in the Bible. So we actually, it's more kind of convoluted and, and it's confusing when we just use the word attraction when we're trying to find about, figure out what is sin and what is not sin. I think that's a lot of the confusion. So instead of using the word attraction, just use biblical categories, desire and temptation. Temptation is not sin. Being tempted, Jesus Christ was tempted in every way. So we're all tempted, right? That's not sin. We don't need to repent of being tempted because Jesus Christ doesn't need to repent of being tempted. However, is temptation good? Temptation is not good. It's not actual sin. We need to resist temptations. But then when you give in to temptation, that's when it turns into desire. So when we recognize these more biblical frameworks and these biblical categories, we can then help someone to turn to repentance. How can we encourage people in their sanctification if we don't know what is it that we need to repent of and what it is that we don't need to repent of? And if we're not calling people to full repentance and we're having them to actually just embrace that sin struggle... I mean, we all have our own sin struggles, and we're not going to go through the little list that we all have, but does it make sense for us to then begin identifying, putting on our name tags, putting on Facebook, you know, I'm a porn-watching Christian. I'm a gossiping Christian. I'm a thieving Christian. I'm an adulterous Christian. Yes, you know, I mean, we're laughing because we realize that would be ludicrous. And yet, when it comes to sexuality, then we say, well, it's okay for to say gay or trans or bi. No, that doesn't mean that we can't be honest with the reality that we all struggle with something, yet do we need to proclaim that? I mean, I think we need to be honest with a few select people. Unlike me, most people are not called to be so open about their sin struggle because I don't think that that is actually helpful. The whole world doesn't need to know what is your very, very specific sin struggle. Your loved ones do, maybe your accountability, your mentor, they should know, but it's not something that we need to proclaim to others. But we should not identify. So as myself, I don't identify with my sin struggle. I never liked labels. Growing up, I was given all these labels, gay, fag, sissy, and I never liked labels. I don't even, I, you know, identify as a Chinese Christian. Am I Chinese? I certainly am, 
but that's not how I would identify. If there's one label that I would be okay with, it's the one that puts my identity centered in Jesus Christ alone. And when you do that, that communicates, I am created in God's image, and I'm also all fallen. But by the grace of God, am I viewed through the righteousness of Christ? That's what that communicates. So beginning there, that we begin with theological anthropology, helps to us to rebuke the arrogant condemner. It helps us to recognize that it's not the ex-gay framework, you know, it's the wrong diagnosis, but also it helps us to affirm full repentance, pointing people, because if we're not pointing people to, to complete repentance, then our trajectory is wrong. See, one of my favorite um, quotes comes from Charles Spurgeon, where he said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. A two-year-old can know the difference between right and wrong. That is not discernment. But discernment, knowing the difference between right and almost right, there's a lot right now, even in evangelical Christianity, that's almost right. Very loving and compassionate but then oftentimes our love is an end in itself. When our love is an end in itself, that's really pointing to nothing. Our love must be a means to an end, and that end is Christ. Christ in all his perfection and his holiness. Fourth, beginning with theological anthropology, we're creating God's image, but we're also all sinners, helps us to answer the born gay question. You might have heard this from your friends. People are born gay. God made them this way. Even people will say, well, the Bible doesn't really even address this. Whether people are born gay. But if we begin with theological anthropology, that we're all created in God's image, but we're also all fallen, we would realize when people say, well, I didn't choose this. Well, did anyone choose to have a sin nature? Like, did any of you, like when you, I don't know, maybe three or four or five years old, you know, tell your mom, hey, mommy, I want a sin nature. <laughs> any of you do that? No. You know, I... I didn't choose this. Or I've been this way as long as I remember. I also hear that as well. You know, people who say, identify as gay. I've been this way as long as I remember. We've been sinners for as long as we remember. Doesn't make sin right. See, when we begin there, it helps us to answer this really important question. Are people born gay? And there's a lot of, even science People are like, oh, I got the science. The science is out. And, and, and I'm going to have a video in the third session that, that we can watch on this. Is being gay genetic? It's inconclusive. Oh, but the Bible doesn't address this. Actually, that's not correct. The Bible does. The Bible does address whether when people, people think they are born gay. Because even though many, many people think they are born gay, you know what Jesus Christ himself says? He says, you must be born again. You may think you're born an alcoholic. 
you must be born again. You may think you're born a liar, a cheater. You must be born again. You may think you're born a you fill in the blank. You must be born again. The old is gone. The new is come. In Christ, you're a new creation. That is not a message just for the gay community. That is a message for the whole world. You must be born again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible message that you've revealed to us through your son, Jesus. And I know that oftentimes people say, oh, well, that sounds so simple. I mean, as a matter of fact, that is the accusation that we hear from the world. Oh, you give all these simple answers. Yes, yeah, certainly. It sounds simple. You must be born again. But Lord, we know in reality that is not a simple answer to live out, to embrace and yet that's just the truth that you revealed to us through your word. Just as salvation is not really complicated, it's only in Christ, sanctification also is actually quite simple in Christ. But help us to apply the simple truth as complicated as that is in our own lives. For we love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen.